Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So, go ahead. Do you like to say a few words? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I figured maybe you would start with something. But for now, I'll just say thank you for once again chatting with me and associating with me. Goswamiji, you're the best. Today, you're going to initiate me, which is an incredible um, mercy and honor and pleasure. I'm I'm not speechless because I'm speaking. But <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> I, I am wordless on, on, on the best way to glorify you, your grace, and properly even conceptualize kind of what's going on now. So actually, I was hoping we could begin by saying like what what are we actually doing here like for a modern very secular person like my family like wh what is this <laughs> what, what, what is this um what is this initiation exactly is i i might well, see, well okay okay since you mentioned secular i'm going to get into that secular as i understand it comes from a latin word meaning world and it's um so it's literally means like worldly um let's see the etymology of secular uh from old french secular from latin secularis from seculum generation age hmm. used in christian latin to mean the world as opposed to the church so um yeah, so first of all, secular, there, there actually was a, a, a movement which, which was victorious in terms of becoming dominant, historical movement toward uh, secularization. If you look at, um, actually, why not jump into this topic, right? all right uh, but i just want you to know at this point no refunds we've gone past that point but um oh darn <laughs> <laughs> so um if you look at the way human societies cultures have structured themselves or understood themselves uh for thousands of years uh certainly most of the time you could almost say you could say almost most of the time or almost all the time uh societies were not secular in the sense that um there was a consensus that reality is not merely physical and so in a sort of a stunning testimony to the utter lack of common sense nowadays uh that has become sort of a uh a controversial topic in other words is the world merely physical is it is it also metaphysical that's a topic we won't get into here uh although there's i think overwhelming evidence that the world is bidimensional both metaphysical and physical our political system is based on that assumption equality not an empirical fact but a metaphysical fact but in any case, um, so most societies and histories, most societies in history have understood that because 
our political or social or economic system should be somehow be in sync with it should be integrated with reality and not irreality and since reality is both physical and metaphysical uh our political and social and economic system should somehow reflect the real nature of the world and so therefore rather than they had non-secular society they had society in which it was considered for example if you look at roman society uh it was considered a civic duty <clears throat> to show certain respect and honor to make certain offerings to the gods as they conceived them interestingly in uh roman society there was religious freedom no one really cared very much who you ultimately prayed to to save your soul but it it was understood that just as we have certain administrative hierarchy in our human society so there is a cosmic administration a cosmic hierarchy and therefore showing certain honor to let's say Jupiter or or uh other roman gods was simply a civic duty it's, it you did that it's it, in the same way you pay your taxes for example you may be a uh uh let's say an enthusiastic uh booster of of the city you live in you really you know you belong to the rotary club or whatever but you also have to pay federal taxes the fact that you let's say identify with your state you're into your state you're into your city and and all that uh like where i grew up in los angeles they call people angelinos perhaps not the most perhaps not the best choice but that's what they call people from LA so or new yorkers or so so you may be an enthusiastic member of your community but you still have to pay federal taxes you and 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 so for the romans uh let's say honoring the gods was something like paying your federal taxes as opposed to <clears throat> your state or city taxes which was you know paid to the actual roman human beings and so one could argue that well because we have freedom of religion we can't have a state religion and there's or we don't want a religion favored by the state and and there's i mean given the history of the west that that was probably a really great idea given all the brutality and cruelty and and just unspeakable evil that was perpetrated in the name of religion it probably was was a good idea to decouple uh religion society however i would say that in itself doesn't necessarily make a society strictly secular because you could have certain higher values which must have a religious base actually secular democracy is kind of a uh a contradiction it's sort of a it, it's sort of a contradiction said the word secular democracy or what's that fancy word oxymoron which means a very unintelligent castrated bull oxymoron but anyway um ox moron anyway so um i would argue that the words secular and democracy are somewhat contradictory because 
democracy is based on the notion that we're all equal, but that's a religious idea. It's not an empirical idea. It's not, although they try to make it empirical, but I mean, you won't even get into the whole, that whole quagmire of race analysis and all that, you know, suffice it to say that just on an individual level, look at all white people, all Asian Americans, all black people, I mean, just look within a race, you don't get into that whole thing with race. Um, people aren't equal. For example, in California, where I grew up, they have public universities. University of California has some status and uh, everybody doesn't get in. In fact, some campuses like UCLA and uh, Berkeley are extremely competitive, almost like Ivy League schools. So, so there you have a public university. It's not even private. You could say, well, a private school can do what they want. They can have their own selection process like you have to be a Christian or you have to be, you know, this or you have to be that. But here you have a public university, a public university in a secular society, which does not treat people, gives them equal opportunity, but not, but doesn't treat them as equal because they're not equal. Some people get in, some people don't. If you try out, let's say you try out for a college basketball team. Uh, again, it's, it's public. It belongs to the public. It's a state institution. And yes, some, some people make the team, some people don't make the team. So if you're trying out for a basketball team, if you're trying to get into a prestigious university, if you're trying to get a good grade in a class, you're trying to win the, you know, you know, sweet Mary Lou or something, or Mary Lou's trying to win sweet, I don't know, Bobby Goo or whatever it is. You know, in, in terms of, you know, trying to attract someone from the opposite side, it's, you're not equal. So where do you find people are actually equal. Certainly not in applying for jobs, not in applying for universities, not in athletic competitions, not in musical competitions, not in the sort of the brutal battleground of uh, free market competition. So where do you find it? And yet we base our whole political system on that and our judicial system and everything. And so so therefore, if you say democracy is based on equality, equality is not a, it's not a mundane concept. It's a metaphysical concept. So what that proves is if you believe there is such a thing as secular democracy, that means you believe something can be metaphysical and secular at the same time. If that's the case, <clears throat> then one could argue simply that you can expand the inventory of metaphysical items, which are considered appropriate within a secular society. As public, as public truths. Because if you have that one public truth of equality, which is obviously not empirical, then uh, why not other public metaphysical truths? And if you do that, then at what point is it, do you cross a line from the secular into the, I don't know, there's a middle ground between secular and non-secular. You call it qualified secularism or qualified non-secularism, but still. So therefore to say people are secular, I think it sounds, it sounds intelligible, but I think upon further investigation, it's one of those innumerable words, which is used somewhat thoughtlessly nowadays um, because there's very little which is actually thoughtful nowadays. Anyway, so as far as as far as the initiation, um, you know, it's an honest way to make a living for the guru. 
just kidding. It's uh, <laughs> so initiation. The Sanskrit word is diksha. The Sanskrit word is diksha, and it simply means that it, it that one, so to speak, signs on the dotted line. If you look at sort of uh, the nature of contracts or sort of a nicer word, which sounds less crassly capitalistic, is um, a covenant. Mm. It's funny because contract sounds kind of... Mercenary. Yeah, whereas covenant sounds sort of like, I don't know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, the New Covenant, so on. But a covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. And so we find in almost all areas of life is that when people are entering into relationships with with other people or with groups and they're serious about it, they, they agree to something. There's a formal agreement, which may be actually in writing. It may be uh, registered with the government as in the case of a, a, a deed a deed, let's say you purchase a property and you get a deed and so you register that. But, and, and of course, the in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation is known as the people of the covenant in the sense that they have a covenant with God and then you get a new movement, Christianity, claiming that God has sort of, you know, I'm going to tear up that old contract and I'm going to give you a better deal. And so... That was the whole idea. That was the argument for the Jesus movement. And I, I won't go into the history of that, which is quite a history. But um, the idea was that God is going to give you a better deal. He's going to tear up that old contract, you know, and he's going to refinance your salvation at a lower interest rate or something. So it's the new covenant. That was the whole idea. This is, this is now the new currently valid covenant. If you, people make formal agreements to attend universities, they sign contracts for everything from baseball teams to the purchase of buildings. And so, so if you just look at life, marriages, marriage is a covenant. It's a sacred covenant, in which two people promise certain things to each other. And so one could argue, in fact, I will argue or claim here, that in virtually every serious aspect of human life, and by serious, I mean where something really important is at stake, uh, people enter into formal agreements. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the same holds true in spiritual life, because after all, it is a form of spiritual education, just like you go to Harvard or if you go to Slippery Rock, which is the Harvard of its region, then um, then you, you sign agreement. You actually, let's say, you know, you apply to a college. If they accept you, then you sign on the dotted line that you will do certain things. You will attend that school. So every area of life. So spiritual life also, we commit ourselves. It, it's, it's a bhakti yoga is a covenant process. And the covenant is simply initiation. Mm, I really like the that word covenant. That's much. That's really accurate to what's going on. Which is, for me, from my perspective, it's 
I've been doing this sadhana, you know, this uh, spiritual practice for a while now, but to be able to publicly and explicitly uh, declare, you know, this covenant, this vow to continue and to really stay on track and to advance more in the future and so on. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I'm here to do. <laughs> another, another satisfied customer. Yes, another satisfied <laughs> customer. <laughs> so I figured, um, uh, well, I have just some questions about, sure. you know, the specifics about rules and regulations and the vow and so on. And then there's the initiation ceremony. And then if we have free time, we can talk about other things. Um, and I don't actually mind which order we do this in, but I figured we'd, you know, just continue with the questions for a okay. bit. Okay, well, go ahead. If you have questions, go ahead. Okay, so um, the first part of the vow, which is, I think, the simplest and most straightforward, is mantra meditation, chanting mantras 18, uh, 16 times 108 every day. Uh, my only question on this concerns... Um, uh, carryover rounds you know like like you have, yeah with the phone plans or you have like the carryover minutes. <laughs> yeah you can carry yeah if you don't finish if you don't finish one day you can make it up the next day yeah so this is something i've, I've and i'm willing to waive time. i'm willing to waive all the penalties too oh wow today's really my lucky day so um from most of the devotees and bhakti yoga practitioners i've met it seems like you know if you do like 15 rounds one day and then 17 rounds the next day to make up for it that's not so bad but if you have like let's say tomorrow you're really busy with work so you do like 18 today and 14 tomorrow is that the same thing or is there something different yeah that's not that's not really kosher yeah I, I yeah. get that feeling too, but I'm not sure like... Well, I, I would explain it this way because premeditated mm. not chanting your rounds is... So let's say every day we wake up with, an, with the intention to keep our vow. And so if some days it's just we're, we're overwhelmed by other things we have to do and and somehow we're not able to do it, then we make it up. But that's not premeditated. That's just you do your best. And if there's a little problem, the next day you repair it. Mm, right. So in this example, it seems the easy thing to do is, well, I'll do the best I can today. Let's say I get 14. And then the next day, I'll do the best I can. I should get 16 at least, hopefully 17, 18, whatever. And yeah, just keep going. But yeah, the the easiest thing is just to get in the habit of doing sixteen every day. Hmm. And as you know, life is very frantic nowadays. But um, yeah, and if, if you're fourteen, it's like you know you don't want to stop for a break when, when the finish line is in view. <laughs> it's like those you see those things on YouTube where some guy's winning a race, he starts celebrating too soon, and someone else passes. <laughs> Yes, that's um, similar things have happened in my life many times. The most recent I can remember was in the in the gym. I was doing judo, and I started to get this this 
what's it called? The jump on my opponent was a higher rank than me so i got so excited i'm like i got him i win and then i fell down prematurely and i injured my leg and i couldn't even practice for a while so that was like you know clear lesson to pride goes pride goes before the fall okay so what is the question oh and also um so that first question reminded me of this the theme i have for this whole kind of questioning segment which is i'm not trying to like premeditate some cheat for the system you know i'm just trying to well clarify what the vow actually is and also this is just my favorite thing to do which is like do like philosophical ethical kind of discourse you might call it a rabbinical process i don't know something like this which is just fun for me to do <laughs> so um the number 16 the number 16, 16, you know, rounds on beads or 16 times 108 is not an absolute number. It was Prabhupada's sort of uh, considered judgment, informed decision on what was not, it was sort of the Goldilocks number, you know, it was not too much and not too little. And because other, in India, his gurus, uh, society they actually did more but Prabhupada figured that this is what people can do nowadays not too much and not too little mm, yes um yeah that's something I'm very um aware of like it's so perfect this is another reason I'm so happy to be initiated because Srila Prabhupada is like a, is incredible I mean he he nailed everything so perfectly and he basically saved my soul so this is kind of the least I can do, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sweet 16. <laughs> yes, yeah, sweet 16. Maybe we could do a, a, a remake of that old song, 16 Candles, you know, the 16 rounds or something. <laughs> I actually, I have ideas of this all the time of like modern rock songs, but, you know, you just add in like Krishna instead of like my baby or whatever, you know? <laughs> I think that's so, so another question. Yes, so that's it for japa and mantras. Moving on to the four rules and regulations, the four things not to do. I figured I'd start with gambling. This one's actually really another simple, easy thing, I think. So I don't like to gamble. I don't care about it. It's not a, an issue for me. But where I think it might uh, come into play or effect is with investing and stocks and cryptocurrency these sorts of things especially in this modern you know digital world it's getting really confusing where the line is so the way i see it is like day trading is gambling so if i'm buying and selling stocks like five times a day to get a hundred bucks profit or whatever to, just to like get profit day yeah. by day that's to me that's gambling yeah, it is kind of like an addiction. Yeah, yes. So that's the addictive aspect is there in the day trading stuff. I, I would say in stocks, as you know, in all investments, all financial instruments, um, there's a ratio where some things are more risky and potentially could yield a higher return. Some things will very likely give a lower return, but are much less risky. 
And so I would say if one is getting too far on that continuum toward high risk, you know, possible high return, I think at that point it starts to get more, um, it's not just investing, it's kind of like, because it's like, you know, if, if, if you throw the little balls down the roulette wheel, it's, uh, it's not a science unless you're like really <laughs> good at that. But, um, and so it's really, I, I think, in fact, you know, a common name for gambling is game of chance. Mm. And I think it's that thing where you're not, you sort of disconnected reward from deserving or reward from merit so that if you earn something or you deserve something, it's natural. There's sort of a natural law in the universe that Krishna states in the Gita about people should get and ultimately do get under God what they deserve. So a game of chance is, is cutting that vital connection between uh, deserving and, and, and receiving and in that sense, it sort of, it, it defies the, the basic principle of justice. Mm. Because if someone, let's say, like they say he lucked out, if someone's like a game of chance and, I, and someone, some, you know, person that doesn't know what they're doing just throws something down on the table and walks away with a million dollars, it's, and you could say there's a higher justice because of karma. But this gets into the broader topic of, you know, how the human world should somehow reflect the, the divine world. So that, for example, you could just walk down the street shooting people. I don't recommend this. But, but someone could walk down the street rec- shooting people and saying, well, if it wasn't for their karma, it couldn't have happened. Let's say even if that's true, but you can't take the law into your own hands. You can walk into death row in, in your local penitentiary and just shoot all the condemned prisoners, but you're guilty of murder. Mm. So in that sense, even where higher principles are involved, like karma or whatever, we have to behave in this world on principles of justice and games of chance are sort of rejecting that principle and saying that the whole purpose of my gambling here is to override the principle of justice and get not what I deserve, but just to get lucky. Hmm you could kind of see it as like a difference between a need and a want kind of like that. Um, I want to just uh, to, um, demonstrate, I guess, the opposite extreme. So the first one I mentioned is like you're day trading, you know, hours every day and it's addictive and you get profit and loss and you just keep playing this, this game. That's gambling to me. That would be against my vow. Now, on the other hand, if I, let's say, buy, I don't know, stock in Procter & Gamble with the intention of just holding it for like 20 years and just getting some dividend payments instead of just keeping it in a savings bank and getting slightly less interest, to me, that that doesn't feel or seem like gambling at all, really. No, if it's... 
because even let's say I have if I have money in the bank under the FDIC limit, so it's all federally insured, but God only knows, you know, how long that's going to last, especially if certain kinds of people get power. So because we're seeing now a whole political class that really cares very little about the Constitution. Mm. So, um, so in that sense, you know, you could say in the broadest construction, everything in this world is gambling. You know, when you when you turn the key of your ignition, actually, I'm dating myself. When you turn your car on, however you turn your car on. <laughs> um, you know, maybe, you know, some character, maybe some godfather wannabe, you know, put some bomb in your engine. So, I mean, really everything, I mean, you could, you could say that everything in this world is risky. It's a dangerous world, but still something like Procter and Gamble. And of course I have to give my, I'm required to say that I'm in no way endorsing Procter and Gamble. I'm not encouraging my disciples to buy Procter and Gamble ingredients for their, uh, for their personal hygiene. And um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have to read this little thing, you know, my lawyer gave me. But uh, yeah, so I, I think the more it is not gambling, the more it is just, you could say administration rather than gambling. You have a certain amount of money, you want to protect it. Um, and uh, so therefore you find some safe haven for your money. Uh, I think I think the main reason people lose money, based on a lifetime of observation, is greed. Mm. Because even like Procter and Gamble, um, if I'm going to maybe earn a few hundred dollars more per year, but it's all at risk, as opposed to let's say having it in the bank, where I make literally a few hundred dollars less, but there's no risk then I'm just going to keep it in the bank because to me, the peace of mind that I have is worth many times more than a few hundred dollars. And I think it's funny how people get all worked up and stressed out by their financial maneuvers. And maybe they make a few thousand bucks more here or there, but then they spend five times that much on vacations and pharmaceuticals and just trying to recover from all the anxiety they got themselves in. So that's just me personally. I would rather take a very cautious, safe, peaceful approach and just think about Krishna. Amen. Um, peace. Yeah. Peace is like, uh, I don't know, maybe you could call it a cardinal virtue, but I do remember uh, there's some verses in the Gita where Krishna talks about how, if there's no peace, there's no uh, intelligence. No happiness. There's no intelligence. There's oh. no happiness. You, you remember says, it more than me. Yeah. It's <laughs> where is peace? No, where is happiness for an unpe for a person that's not peaceful? Where is it like rhetorical? Where is happiness? Like yeah. where is the question of happiness? So next question. Yes. All right. Gambling done. Moving on to, oh, my favorite intoxicants <laughs> yeah. so um if i were to kind of step out of my uh bhakti vedanta bias if that makes sense and and define like what is an intoxicant i would actually not include 
entheogens in that category. You include what? Entheogens. So what are entheogens? it's a fancy word for psychedelics, basically. But but entheogen literally, I think the difference is entheogen means natural, like like a plant. How do you Whereas, spell that? How do you spell it? I will. I can put it in the chat here. E n entheogen. E n t h e o g e n. The e root is. It might come from the same root as theism, right? I would say it does go in the category of intoxicants for a simple reason. And obvious reason. Put another coin in the meter and I will tell you. So, and that is for this, it's really for the same reason as gambling. It violates the principle of justice. In the sense that the real way one achieves peace and happiness and higher awareness is by earning it. Mm. And so an entheogen, I would put in the category of, of, of uh, to use the sort of dramatic phrase, term, prohibited substance, because mm. it, um, it's an attempt to get a shortcut. Mm. It's an attempt to achieve a higher state of consciousness without earning it. Now, I, so I agree, and especially from, uh, well, there's many different perspectives floating around in my head, but what if for argument's sake that I am not doing, not uh, if a person is not, uh, is, is not doing it for a shortcut, but doing it as a just spiritual religious ritual in itself, kind of like uh, ayahuasca, maybe you've heard of that. But there's many. Yeah, I I would I would just say in relation to what I already said, I would just come in with a ditto there. I think that I think that psychotropic drugs may be justified if, let's say, someone has uh, some type of emotional or mental ailment, and to bring them back to a baseline, to bring them back mm. to sort of a, because. To, to make them functional, to make them, you know, to avoid, let's say, suicidal impulses or or aggressive impulses. So right. I, I, yeah. So, so I think, you know, it is possible if we can just sort of put aside all the sophistry. Uh, it is possible to talk about normal consciousness. It's not. It's not an enlightened state but it's not a neurotic or let's say emotionally unwell state. It's just sort of normal conscious where you can function in the world. I think uh, drugs or medications, which are required, meaning that their benefits cannot be achieved in other less invasive ways, but those kinds of medicines which are required just to bring one to a functioning state where, where he or she can just live quote unquote a normal life that's justified but if you want to go beyond that and achieve uh, states of higher awareness then you have to earn it mm. yeah that makes sense i have uh lots of personal experience here that is I mean, I, I, I have, I've literally cheated and, and I've felt the effects of like the, uh, being a good cheat and a bad cheat. Like I've already done this whole thing. <laughs> this is why I'm like 
it's time to get initiated because I don't need to do that anymore at all. Like, it's just, if I was like 16 or something, like it'd be a different story, but you know, sweet 16. <laughs> um, so another thing that um, may uh, come up in my future life and it will give me a quant, what's the word, quandary? Um, difficulty, confusion, something is not using or abusing an intoxicant, but like tasting an intoxicant or socially um, as part of a social thing. Cause so I can I, Yeah, I, I would I would say if you do it socially, you're really wasting a great teaching moment. Mm. Because I mean if you let's say there's some party or event and you say, yeah, I actually don't drink alcohol. It's not like spitting in someone's face or kicking them in the shins or calling them some bad name. I mean, it's, it's just, it's obviously within the, within your right. And, and you can be a perfect gentleman and a, a perfect host or a perfect guest and, and not to drink. So I think there are some ways in which we should fit in. We should ingratiate ourselves just be nice people but it doesn't mean we have to violate our principles and so and so i i can't and so i can't imagine for example when i was at harvard in, in my department sanskrit and indian studies they had a, this little friday afternoon or early evening get together you know trying to sort of promote camaraderie collegiality in the department and so Friday, I don't, I can't remember what time it was, maybe five o'clock or four or five o'clock, whatever it was. Uh, we'd meet there in the department and there'd be crackers and cheese and wine. And uh, I never drank the wine and no one was, I mean, it would be absurd for someone to be offended by that. And uh, I had, you know, I was friends with everyone. We had really good relations with everyone. I didn't have to drink the wine to be a nice guy. Well, Goswami, there is actually a very, to me, there's a, there's a big cultural thing here. That's a huge dimension. So in America, yes, I'm with you hundred percent on this and it won't be an issue. What I'm actually thinking in my head is like East Asia, for example, if I were to marry a rural Vietnamese girl and I meet her father, He's going to, or Chinese too, like there's many nations like this where he'll say, okay, you want to marry my daughter? You have to, you know, do more shots than me. You have to drink me under the table so I know you're a man and then you can marry my daughter. So do they really, do they really do that? Yeah. And it's not, and it's not like an optional thing. A lot of times it's just not, it's like a very, um, so so like, how did they how did they win the war with a culture like that? Well, there is the whole history of the Vietnam War, for example. <laughs> um, I think I think that um, for one thing, if let's say you want to marry a girl, which means you want to spend your life with her, it is. In a, in a culture like that where family is important, I would say it would be um, dangerous for you 
to marry a girl who, number one, thinks so little of your spiritual practice. It's like, why are you marrying her? Or number two, is so much controlled by her family that she would expect you in order for her to marry you to do something which she knows goes against your spiritual practice. I think that would be an extremely inauspicious way to get married because if she, if, if she's so heavily influenced by her father that she would even ask you or want you to violate your sacred vows, then that means that after you're married, it's, it's going to be a pretty rough road. And because when people get married, if you marry someone, you want to have a relationship where you work things out among yourselves. And it's not the girl goes running to daddy or the guy goes with his mother. That's even kind of like more bizarre. But, and so in order for a marriage to be successful, it's important that two people work things out between them. So if the girl doesn't just step in and just tell her father, hell no. That's crazy. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand who my who this man is. If the girl's not going to stand up for you in that situation, she's not going to stand up for you later, and you're going to have a terrible and probably very brief marriage. Mm. Thank you, Goswami. That's really um, uh, the broad perspective there. Bring it in <laughs> nicely. Um, just one more little question on intoxicants. As you know, I'm a Campanella. You're not going to ask my favorite beer or anything, are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I've never drank. I never drank beer in my life. Wow. And cool. I, I, I thought. I thought just the smell of it was disgusting. And anyway, I won't. I won't. I won't do. I won't do my rant on beer right now. Mm, well, I as an ex-brewer, I promise I won't. <laughs> The next brewer. <laughs> yeah, in my college days in Vermont, I was winemaking and brewing and doing lots of fun stuff. But uh, you know, it's just a hobby, not something I'm attached to or anything. Um, okay, so as a Campanella who has never been to Italy, my ancestral homeland, I can romanticize a a scenario where I meet my my campanellas, my families in Sicily, and they say, oh, you know, it's you finally come back home. It's so great. And you have to try this wine that we- No, no, no. Because for... first of all, if people, you can't, there's no way you're going to develop a, a meaningful, lasting relationship with people if, if you just hide everything about yourself. Then they're just relating to this fictitious little persona you've thrown up in front of them. And so if I was, if I was you, and if I was going to go visit, uh, you know, my people in Italy, I think before I went, I'd send them pictures, videos, maybe do a, una zoom, una zoom. Uh, and uh, and uh, so they get to know you. I mean, I mean, you, you don't want to do any cold calling. You know, if you're trying to practice spiritual life, you don't just like show up in Sicily. What you do is you write to them, you meet on Zoom, you explain yourself. 
you know, this is what I do. You know, another thing is you could pull on them is that Romani antiki, the 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 ancient Romans, they were practically vegetarian. You know, they, they their big power food was chickpeas. For one thing, meat doesn't last; it gets rotten. You gotta. It's just you know, it, you know, if you study the history of Roman warfare, which I have, um, it's very interesting because a lot of it is agility. If you've got this whole big herd of ox you're going to slaughter, I mean, you're going to be about as agile as Humpty Dumpty. And so, no, they, they were they were agile. You know, you need to be able to move quickly. They had they carried these bags on their belt that had chickpeas for protein. So, um, yeah, that's the thing, you know. It, it, it's one thing to be nice and friendly. It's another thing just to capitulate every time someone you know, you, I mean, they stand up for their principles. Why don't you stand up for yours? It's like you're putting them above you. Mm. It's one thing to say, okay, we're devotees. We know we're the, you know, we're the greatest thing since, I don't know, buttered corn on the cob. So it's one thing. So we say, okay, even though you're a spiritual practitioner, even though you're one of these most fortunate people that knows Krishna, still just be a regular guy, you know, don't put yourself above people. That makes sense, you know, just be a, but you don't put yourself below them. Well, what about, I, I see your point, but. Um, so you should, the, the, you should, I don't think, I think you should really get to know people a little bit and they should know you. They should know who you are. They should mm. know who you are and they should know that, you know, for example, let's say in a typical Italian family, especially in the old days, you know, a few generations ago, it's like in these big Italian families, you know, one of the boys would become a priest. Like every big Italian family would give one boy to the church. And so if, if you're, let's say your brother or your son or your nephew, whatever is coming for a family dinner, you don't try to set them up with, you know, with little Lulu or something. You know, you don't try to set them up with some good looking girl from your neighborhood. Because everybody else in the extended family they have wives or husbands or girlfriends or boyfriends. This guy's a priest. So in their own religion, they make exceptions. They understand that religious people have special vows they follow. So the Italians, frankly, you know, more than most people can understand religious vows. Hmm. And, and that's our experience. And because I used to, I was, you know, in charge of Italy for a while, you know, the co-GBC and, and I speak Italian and I really like Italy. You know, I, I mean, I, have, I always have a, a great time when I go there. And so I spend time in Italy. You know, I know something about Italy. In my experience, of course, you know, Sicilia is, you know, that's <laughs> Sicilia. But, um, <laughs> but my experience in general with Italians is that they tend to be kind of cosmopolitan about religious things. They and they really understand that you know religious people make vows. Sorry, what do you mean by cosmopolitan in this sense? I mean they're sophisticated. They they're not they're not just like little village people that everyone has to be like us. Now it depends on who your relatives are in Sicily, you know. But I but 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 many Italians that I've met, if you explain to them that I'm a priest 
or that or that I, I have a you know I, I'm dedicated to a religious path or spiritual path and we make certain vows. The Italians understand that more than most Europeans. They respect the fact that when you take up a religious vocation, you make special vows. So my experience in Italy is there's a lot of sympathy for stuff like that, a lot of respect. This is really good news. I feel much more motivated to visit Italy and much more strong to maintain my vow at the same time. Yeah, I mean, with no, I, I mean, no offense, but if it was a Greek island, then that might be a little more difficult. But, you know, Athens probably wouldn't be a problem. But uh, no, my experience in Italy, people are tend to be open-minded. They have sort of a, you know, mature understanding of religion. They're different religions and you take vows and they understand those things. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't eat the spaghetti... And, and, and you're allergic to olive oil. I think that would be a much bigger problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a big part of this is I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally in knowledge about Italian culture. No, my experience is Italians tend to be nice people. If you take the time to explain to them, especially the fact that a religious person, you know, has some special rules to follow, they understand that. Mm, excellent. Okay, so I think, the, oh, no, there's one more hard question concerning illicit sex. <laughs> so, um, that's funny. It sounds sound like to illicit sex, which means to kind of try to, <laughs> try to obtain it, you know, to illicit sex. <laughs> yeah, no eliciting sex. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm just going to ask you and you can respond however you want. I, I know this is, a, this is a gross topic. No one wants to, I don't think we want to. Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> to me, it's just philosophy. As, as, as one of my personal heroes once said, you know, bring it on. Good. Good. Yeah. Very good. I'm, yeah, I'm the same <laughs> way with philosophy. I'm thinking more about other people listening to this. I'm trying to keep it brief for them. But basically, concerning my vow, Strictly, I mean, like specifically the vow I'm taking, not so much in general, because I, I already know all the principles. That's pretty easy. But in terms of the vow, what do we think of porn, masturbation, and in general, orgasming? Are these all three not allowed, considered illicit sex? Oh, that's a very pleasant dinner, top, dinner table topic. Um, I would <laughs> look at that. Natalie is hiding her face behind her glasses. <laughs> I would say that um, it's obviously, you know, not a great idea. I mean, we, I don't want to rate them, say, but I, I think that it, to be honest, none of those things are, you know, we should do. I mean, we should avoid all those things, but actually having an illicit connection with another person, I think is, is, is even worse because you're engaging someone else. And it's, um, what, what's that euphemism they use? Pleasuring oneself. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we should avoid all those things. Right, right. So that's, that's the principle that I'm, I have no, pro I'm totally secure about in, in yes. knowledge and booty, you could say. Um, what I guess I'm 
not concerned about as much as like kind of a problem with maybe how this is worded is that I could technically, you know, be celibate, never have sex with someone else, never masturbate, but I could watch porn all day. And that might well, be it's, um, by the vow. So it's like, you know. Well, as far as pornography, um, I mean, clearly there's something wrong there. <laughs> If you're if you're trying to be a serious spiritual practitioner, I remember even at, I remember at Harvard Divinity School there was one guy his name was Ron something I can't remember his name but he was a nice guy he was one of in the admissions committee or something in fact when I was applying I even had a little exchange with him and somehow it was discovered that he was using his at work on his Harvard computer he was doing porn and so it was. Um, I mean, they didn't behead him or anything or even castrate him, but he was, um, it was considered to be inappropriate. And then they kind of worked it out. I mean, they were kind of nice about it, but yeah, pornography is, first of all, it places one deeply in the bodily concept of life. And it is really based on, if, if, you, if you go into the psychology of lust, it's really based on lording it over someone else. I mean, I mean, the whole point of, especially say for a man in, in enjoying a woman, because it's the men that do pornography, despite, you know, kind of like pathetic attempts to say the sexes have the same psychology and everything. And, but, but it's really, it's, it's really more a man's thing. And uh, which proves they're more intelligent. That was, that was a joke. So, if you look at the whole psychology behind pornography, it's, ba- it, it's, it's subjugating. It, it's totally subjugating, even humiliating, dominating another person. In other words, it's perhaps the most, it's one of the, one of the most intense illusory experiences of lording it over this world. So clearly, mm. so clearly, uh, you know, doing porn because ha technically it didn't break the principles you know it's like like some kind of like i don't know perverse gotcha moment it's uh like i beat the system <laughs> i mean i mean clearly clearly it's it's going to uh damage seriously damage one's spiritual life mm, yes absolutely uh, I think the main reason I have to ask about this is because, like you said, this is a problem for men, and it's a very serious problem for male-bodied persons. Yeah, um, yeah. To use the sort of the easy and very brief uh, ISKCON term, uh, male-bodied living entities, as opposed to men. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> much shorter, but much less descriptive, single-syllable, monosyllabic word, men. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously certain things are just, we just shouldn't do them. And if yeah. someone if someone has an addiction or something like that, then, you know, work on it. Just recognize it that it's, I shouldn't be doing this. It doesn't mean you're a bad, it doesn't mean someone's a bad person or evil or should be cast out of society and 
you know, locked in a room and forced to listen to public radio fundraising drives as the most cruel form of punishment imaginable. But um, yeah, but if, 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 someone, if someone does have that bad habit, then they should sincerely endeavor to overcome it. I agree completely. And uh, fortunately, I don't have any addictions to any of this stuff. If I did, I'd be in a very different situation, I think. Um, what else? Oh, this is interesting. Onions and garlic are technically not against my vow. But as you know, this is a very common or standard thing. in. This I guess, yeah, by some people consider to be just slightly below cow killing. You know, it's... Um... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just as far as <laughs> just slightly yeah. as far as onion and garlic um i would say that first of all it's a pan-asian idea so that for example in strict thai restaurants they don't use onion and garlic it's a buddhist i mean strict buddhists don't eat onion and garlic so it's not just india it's not just devotees, it's not just India, it's, not, it's actually a pan-Asian thing. And so they believe, they believe that ingesting, which is a, I could have just said eating, but I wanted to impress you. So ingesting onions and or garlic somehow um, harms or lowers or contaminates your consciousness. And I would say there would have to be some scientific basis for that. Um, I did see a very long lecture about this and I, the, the devotee, the Prabhu, he, he mentioned that there, he mentioned many verses in different uh, Vedic texts that, you know, that show how it is slightly less than cow killing to eat onions and garlic. But I, as far as I know, I don't know any Shastric references in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Srimad Bhagavadam, or the Chaitanya Charitamrita that mention onions and garlic. Am I right about that? Or is there some shlokas yeah. that we need to know? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the Sanskrit word for onion and garlic. I don't I, I, There must be one. But... Um, so I, I, I think it's an area where ultimately, ultimately, I think I would defer to the science. Mm. Yes, science. <laughs> in, the, in the sense that if, in other words, if we don't eat onions and garlic, uh, oh, Krishna Sundry. So if the, if the onion and garlic if we shouldn't eat them, there has to be a good reason for it because it's obviously not ethical thing. It's not that actually garlic plants are really little people with highly developed consciousness. And so when you pull them out of the ground, I mean, it's, you know, it's, so, so there has to be, there has to be some scientific reason for it. And I don't know if there is, I don't know if it's just, a belief coming from Asia, because it is a belief in Asia, or if actually scientifically it affects consciousness in a way 
which is so objectively undesirable that one should not eat those things. I could, I could see the case being made that um, onions and garlic promote like a rajaguna mentality, so to speak. And, and this well, is not so as does, good well, as sattvic well, guna. Yeah. But, but then again, you'd have to, I, I know, I know I, I had a friend who, you know, who was helping our movement who, um, who was in the air force. He was a flight engineer or something. And he said that they were told not to eat garlic right before flying, flying because it kind of affected your reactions and everything. And so, so of course then it has medicinal properties, but, um, but if you say, if you, I mean, if you say it's in the, let's say in passion or something or ignorance, there has to be an explanation of that. In other words, this, because for example, you could say drinking liquor is the mode of ignorance, but we can easily explain that physio- neurologically. Mm. There's a very clear neurological explanation of why you shouldn't drink or take other drugs. And even marijuana causes all kinds of harm, although you know some people don't want to uh, look at the science on that. So as far as... Um, I mean, if you look at the, the 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 food that's typically offered to deities in Hare Krishna temples, a lot of it is just like blatantly passionate. Yeah, yeah. That's why I brought it up is because if that was the argument someone was making, then it's going to, f- there's no gravity to that. I think. So I would personally, not just because, you know, I want to eat, you know, fried onion rings or something, but I would, I think it would be very good to find what is a scientific basis for that, for the, for all the principles, whether it's, let's say, you know, the, the, like, uh, illicit sex or gambling or, or intoxication in general, the science is obvious. I mean, there, there, there's unlimited science to demonstrate why you shouldn't do those things. Mm, Yes. And, uh, even, for example, preserving the sanctity of marriage. Not, you know, having sex outside of marriage. There's all kinds of social science research about that. So as far as onions and garlic, it would be nice if someone actually proved that there is a significant, that there's significant harm from onions and garlic. I do remember now that we're talking about, I did hear... I mean, I don't go into detailed research on any sort of science because I just don't care that much. But um, it's the, I think it has to do with the effect that garlic has on our nervous system. Like that's why it's medicinal is because it has that strong um, effect on our nervous system. I think that's why it's bad is when you start okay, but, but, but again, too much okay, recreationally. But, then it's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but then again, we need to, we just need the science. That's all. Yeah. So, Someone needs to show us the science. I'm not saying that we should eat onions and garlic, but um, but I, I want to see the science. Yes, I'd be curious about that too. As long okay. as you package yeah. it to me in, in a headline in a 30-second article, I'll be happy to read it. <laughs> so next question. So we're going a little overtime here. So next question. Okay, almost done. Or are we done? Okay, here's a fun one. <laughs> Oysters have no nervous system and they grow like plants. <laughs> what is an oyster? Is it meat? Is it in between meat and plant life? What is an oyster? 
Uh, God, I'm trying to remember that class I took in oysterology. <laughs> I mean, obviously I didn't. So again, it's uh, according to their place in the animal kingdom, oysters are bivalve, bivalve, you knew that, mollusks. Mm, I mean, mollusks, that's the, yes. yeah, that's the obvious thing. It's a bivalve mollusk. Which, which, which means they are most technically not plants, not even fungus. Here's a whole article, oysters, vegan or not. Uh, and um, This is how I heard about it. I was on some vegan site and I started reading some things. That, well, that's interesting. Oysters protect their soft bodies by snapping their shells tightly closed at the first hint of dangers. Plants also have defensive response mechanisms. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, I don't, oysters to me, it's just what, what does the science say? That's all. Hmm. So, next. Hey, Krishna Sundar. <laughs> I think that's it. That is definitely it. I don't, I don't like going into this too much, but these are just a few. But the general, yeah, but the general principle is, and this is a big point in Krishna West, that, um, just kidding. The big point is that uh, I think we should be rational and we should be science-based. I personally practice Krishna consciousness because it's a spiritual science. And, and in everything in life, I try to act intelligently to the, be the best of my ability. So things like oysters, things like onion, garlic, you know, let's see the science. Excellent. Okay, so yeah, I have no more questions. If it's okay with you, Goswami, we can continue with the covenant. The covenant, yes. Um, okay, so for initiation, uh, as you know very well, you make a vow, and then I do a credit check, and, um, and then we see if we've got a deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so why don't you, so, so, so what is your vow? Okay, my vow is to, from this day forward, chant every single day the Maha Mantra, uh, uh, six, wait. I'm, I'm going to get confused on the math now. Uh -huh. <laughs> 16 times 108 times every day. 16 rounds yes. of the Maha Mantra. I will do that every day from now on. I will abstain from intoxicants, illicit sex, gambling, and meat eating. I promise to do these things. Very good. God is my witness and Goswami as my Diksha Guru. Hare Krishna. Okay, very good. Um, so the name I chose for you because you're you are known in some circles as Ananda, isn't it? In some circles, yes. Yes. So there is. Uh, so I chose the name Vidyananda because Vidya means knowledge, scientific knowledge, and so. In fact, an Ananda Vidya Nija Bhakti Yoga said that these are the gifts of Lord Chaitanya, Vidya, 
clear knowledge of reality and ananda, spiritual happiness. And actually, I, I had a, um, a god brother, a very nice devotee named Vidyananda, who passed away very recently. And uh, we are acquiring from his widow, who I also know is a nice devotee, his library. He, he, he was a, uh, a serious book collector, Krishna conscious book collector. So we're acquiring his collection for our uh, institute in Gainesville. And so you can continue that tradition of cultivating happiness through real knowledge, spiritual knowledge. Mm, excellent. Vidyananda Das. I'll write it in chat with the diacritic mark. I won't, let's oh, see. I get the diacritic marks too. Do I have to pay more for that or? You do, but I'm assuming you want the. Oh yeah, no, I, you could give me extra diacritic marks actually. That'd be. Vidyananda. Vidya, of course, comes from the root vid, which means to know, like Veda. And we still have many words in English from the Sanskrit root vid or Veda, such as video and vision and uh, uh, and um, in Italian the verb to see, because knowledge is always considered to be seen, like the sages or seers, the verb to see in Italian is vedere. So if you say io vedo, I see, there's I see, vedo means I see in Italian, of course, in the Latin. Okay, very good. Thank you for your sincere practice of Krishna consciousness. Krishna Sundari, that's, can everyone see Krishna Sundari? They can't on on Facebook. Yes, Krishna Sundari is my disciple, and her mother is my disciple. And Krishna Sundari, how old are you now? I'm eighteen. Eighteen, very good girl, very good, intelligent, very talented musician, songwriter. <laughs> and so, uh, do you have any message for everyone for all the devotees? No do pressure. I have, do I have a message? <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, it's a lot of pressure to put on me. I was just here for healing. <laughs> Krishna Sundri's mother, Ananda Leela, handles all of our communications programs and everything. Do you have a message? No. <laughs> Wait, is that's Ananda Leela? Is is the mother? Yes, I know. No one believes they, that. I, yeah, they look like sisters. Don't take that the wrong way, Krishna Sundari. <laughs> yes, they're, yes. They're not saying that you look very old. <laughs> it's the opposite one, yes. <laughs> I was about to be super offended. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay. So, is that, so I think we've completed our program. We have completed our program. On one final note, I will say there's actually one very massive thing we forgot, Goswami, which is preaching. So I remembered, I, it might have been on an email or in some correspondence, you said I should make the vow of Japa and four rules and regs and also try to do something to serve Prabhupada's movement. Yes. Actually, Prabhupada had this simple initiation vow, you know four and 16. And so I think that we should not add on to that. 
It's like, mm. you know, that old saying, don't try to be more Catholic than the Pope. And so, um, so some, I've heard sometimes like gurus will say, and you know, add on to the vow, but that's Prabhupada's vow. I will say that if we want to advance, if we want to really understand Krishna consciousness, we have to try to help others because you can't, you know, selfish people just don't make a lot of spiritual advancement. And so the more we try to help other people to understand Krishna, the more we understand it. No question. Mm. So I was thinking, yes, I know this is not part of, you know, the explicit vow and we don't want to change Prabhupada's wishes here, but I was hoping if you are happy with it, we could meet again in a month or two and do another show just on preaching in general about maybe not so much in general because you've talked about that so many times before but maybe more personally like how I can be best of service and another burning question on my mind and heart is where in the world should I live because I'm kind of homeless right now and homeless in a good way meaning I can actually because of my job I can live anywhere in the world and I'm a little bit confused on where I should live and where I can be. I think, okay, that, that, that's an easy question to answer, where you should live. Oh, and, okay. and, we, and we can do another program later, just have to talk to Nanda Leela. Uh, and she just winds, winds me up and points me. <laughs> so as far as where to live, as far as where to live, we should live in that place where we can best serve Krishna. Mm. And if we have... If we let other criteria intercede or take precedence, then we're not going to have a great life. Mm, yes. It's like if you're, if you're a general leading your army into battle and you say, well, we have, to, we have to camp somewhere and strategically we really need to be here, but I don't like the weather there. So let's make our camp somewhere else or, or we have to choose a battlefield this is the most strategic battlefield. I'm going to go somewhere else because it has really nice flowers and there's a little river and it's really pretty. I mean, that's not, you know, if you're a, if you're a military leader, you can't make decisions on that basis. And so if we really want to dedicate ourselves to helping this planet, you know, people love those blockbuster movies like, you know, Tom Cruise and Bruce Willis, I guess, you know, they're aging a little bit, but where people are trying to save the planet Either an asteroid's going to hit it or there's some alien invasion or, you know, whatever. So when you're in that mode that you're trying to save the planet, all your decisions are strategic. They're not self-gratifying. And so one way to see that you're really in Krishna consciousness is that you make life decisions like where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do. On strategic grounds, because if I do this, I can help the most people. And of course, there has to be a balance. You can't be too self-sacrificing. You have to give some consideration to your personal nature, your health needs, and things like that. You can't just, you know, pretend like I'm a blank slate, because you're not. We're not blank slates. We have needs. We have natures and so on. So we take consideration of that. But let's say all other things being equal. If all other things are equal, like I can satisfy my own basic needs in a number of places, then I go to that place where I can best serve. And if we're not thinking like that, we're not thinking like servants. 
If we're not thinking like servants, we're not thinking spiritually. We're just thinking in a mundane way. Yes, and once again, Goswami, I agree with everything you say. The The principles are all there, but I'm still very much at a loss, actually. So okay, we can we can talk later. Yeah. yeah, we can talk. We can talk about that and uh, Next try time. to figure that one out. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Nanda Leela. It was very nice to see Krishna Sundari. <laughs> and uh, I've known her since she was, how old were you when I first met you? Like six, I think. Six years old, yeah. Hardly changed. I know. Just kidding. <laughs> it's another one of those things. Just take the good part as a compliment and the rest. <laughs> okay, well, congratulations with Yananda Das. Thank you all very much. And we'll see you guys later. Thank you, everyone. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Hare Krishna. <laughs>